Uh, Checkups are important, aren't they? Uh, Sometimes we may think that we are physically healthy, but then a checkup reveals that maybe we're not. Uh, The last checkup that I had uh, back in February, I believe it was in March, um, I learned that my salt content was low in my blood work. That had never happened for me before. Never ever had low salt. Now, I know that too much salt is not good, but I also know that not enough salt is not good. And so that checkup was very important because it gives me something to be watching and to be careful about. Did you know the Bible teaches us that we ought to regularly have a spiritual checkup? In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 13.5. And I want you to read these words for me because they talk about the importance of a spiritual checkup. Let's read them together. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. Now, the physical checkup is important. How much more crucial is a spiritual checkup, right? Because eternity is at stake. And what Paul is saying to here to us all is that we are to examine the quality of our faith. Uh, It was Socrates who said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, The Apostle James, he would say to us, the unexamined faith is not worth having. And today as we continue in the book of James, James wants us to have a spiritual checkup. He wants us to examine the quality of our faith. And he is going to teach us in the latter half of chapter 2 that there are three types of faith, and only one can save us. Now let me show to you uh, just uh, sort of the outline of where James will be taking us this morning. Because every single one of us in this room today is in one of these three categories. Either we have dead faith, either we have emotional faith, or either we have saving faith. And James wants us to know exactly where we stand. Because it is only the last kind that is saving faith. That is the only kind that will bring us into a relationship with God and take us ultimately to heaven. And so this morning, as we follow along the teaching of the half-brother of Jesus, the Apostle James, every one of us needs to be thinking. Which category of faith am I in? And what must I do about what I learn? Let's take a moment, shall we, and pray together. Lord, thank you today for uh, a message like this. 
James has told us that the Bible is like a mirror. It shows us the reality of ourselves. And now, Lord, he takes that mirror and he holds it up before our faith. And he says that we need to examine the quality of our faith because it is easy for us to be misguided, self-deceived, and therefore ultimately on the wrong path. And I pray today that you would help me to teach your word as I ought, to make it clear and plain. But then, Lord, I know that only the Holy Spirit is capable of truly reaching into our hearts and showing us our need and drawing us to saving faith in Christ. And so I pray for His special working today, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's begin, shall we, with dead faith. And what James says to us is that dead faith is the kind of faith that stays in your head. Open your Bibles to James chapter 2, and I want you to follow along as I read verses 14 to 16. Here James is talking about a kind of faith that is dead faith, and this is the kind of faith that simply stays in a person's head. Look what he says, starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead is dead. Now, I want you to notice, as James opens up this section, he talks about someone who says. He says, if someone says. And very clearly here, this person thinks that faith means believing the right things and saying the right words. And it's clear that this person believes that it doesn't really matter um, uh, you know, how you live, as long as you have the right beliefs and you profess salvation. We could say about this person that uh, for them, faith stops right here at the neck. It's all about what I believe in my head and what I say with my mouth. But this person would say there is no essential connection with the way that I live. Now we uh, begin to see right away here that James is dealing with the very nature of saving faith. Is saving faith passive? Merely a matter of correct doctrines and saying the right words? Or is saving faith active? Does it produce a a change in my life, uh, the way that I act, the way that I live, and the priorities that I live by? Now, you will notice here that James asked two questions, and both of those questions expect a no answer. That's very clear if we were able to look at the original language. Um, He says in verse 1, or verse 14, what good is it? What good is it? 
Does that kind of faith give us any advantage? Are we better off? What's the answer? No. And then you will notice, he says in verse 14, can that faith save him? Did you notice the word that? James does not say here, can faith save him? The definite article is present in the original language. What he says is, can that faith save him? What kind of faith? The kind of faith that stays in the head and goes no further. What's the answer? No, that kind of faith cannot save him. Now, James is a wonderful illustrator, isn't he? Somebody said to me this morning, we know that James must have been like the half-brother of Jesus. It makes sense, because like Jesus, he was a great illustrator. And so he gives us an illustration in verses 15 and 16. And the illustration is something like this. Suppose we were to come to church today, and we were to see a member of our church in the lobby. We'll call her Penny. And let's pretend that it's uh, not uh, September, but it's January, it's very cold, and we notice that Penny does not have a coat on. And so we say, Penny, where's your coat? And she says, well, you know, my husband lost his job. We don't have any income coming. And then as you look a little closer, you notice that Penny um, is unwell. She looks sick. And she says, well, we don't have any food in the house. And so you say to Penny, poor thing, let me pray for you. And you use the prayer in verse 16 as you pray for Penny, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Now if that's all you do for Penny... James says in verse 16, what good is it? Did you notice the same question? The same question from verse 14 about dead faith. He now repeats in the illustration, what good is that? And it's no good. It's no good. To pray over somebody and not help them with a physical need, when you have the opportunity to do that, is phony baloney. James has us exactly where he wants us, doesn't he? He draws the conclusion. That's what it's like with dead faith. Look at it, verse 17. So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. Passive faith is dead faith. It is a non-saving faith. Now, let me just apply this to some of us that are here today. This can be a real danger for those of us who have gone through the motions but do not live for Jesus. It is very, very easy for people to go through the motions of their church and think somehow that by going through those motions, that that has brought them into vital contact with the Lord Jesus. But motions alone 
are not saving faith. A number of years ago, I, I visited a man in the hospital who was quite ill. His name was Carl. He has since passed away. I was very concerned about Carl's spiritual condition, and as we visited in the hospital, I felt a freedom to say, Carl, are you a Christian? Carl said to me, yes, I am a Christian, and he gave this reason as to why he was a Christian. He said many years earlier, he had gone forward in a service in our church and had prayed a prayer of salvation. And Carl was basing the fact that he was a Christian on that experience. You know what was true about Carl's life? He didn't worship God. He never learned from the Bible. He never spent time in Christian fellowship. He never really went to church. And he never engaged in any kind of even small service for Jesus. You know what it became apparent to me? That Carl was deceiving himself. That he had dead faith. I've often put it this way, many people are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. Because it is 18 inches from your head to your heart. And many people have a faith that is based simply in their head and in their words and in motions that they have gone through, perhaps in a church like Carl did, but their heart has never been transformed. And someday they will find they miss heaven by 18 inches. Because dead faith is not saving faith. Are any of us in this category today? James says, examine carefully if we are. Because God wants us to draw us to the real thing. Let's look at the second type of faith. Secondly, James says there is emotional faith. Emotional faith. And this is faith that only stirs your emotions. Now notice what he says in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? That faith, apart from works, is useless. Now, do you know what James says here is intended to shock us? He is telling us that demons have faith. By the way, for those of us who may not know, demons are fallen angels who rebelled with Satan against God, and now they remain in opposition to the Lord. And when James says that demons have faith, that is intended to shock us, to say to ourselves, what? When he says here, uh, you believe that God is one, this was the major doctrinal statement of Jews confessing monotheism. 
It comes from Deuteronomy 6. In fact, to this very day, in the uh, opening of synagogue services, uh, this statement is quoted, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's the basic doctrinal statement of all Judaism. You've heard people say this, I'm not very religious, but I believe in God. You know what James would say? James would say, so what? The demons believe that too. That's what he says. The demons believe that too. Do you know what? It's an amazing thing to uh, realize the things that demons believe. If you were to go through the Gospels, here are the things that we would discover that fallen angels believe. God exists. Jesus is God. There is future punishment. And demons believe that Jesus is going to be the final judge. Say, isn't that pretty good theology? Isn't that pretty good doctrine? Do you know, that's more than some people believe, right? I remember having a conversation with a lady in a restaurant, and the conversation turned to spiritual things, and she said to me, uh, well, I, I believe in heaven, but I don't believe in hell. She said, hell is here on earth. Do you know, even demons know better than that. Even demons know better than that. They know the reality of Jesus, and they know the reality of future punishment, and they know that someday He is going to be their final judge. How many of us here this morning would say, this is great theology, but how many of us would say it means that demons are going to heaven? Of course not. Of course not. They know this all in their head. Now, here's what we might say this morning. If passive faith is dead faith, and demons have that amount of faith in their heads, what's the difference? Did you notice this? Demons go one step further. Verse 19 says about them, they believe and shudder. They believe and shudder. Demons are stirred in their emotions. As you go through the Gospels, when the demons met Jesus... The Bible says about them, they trembled emotionally at the prospect of God's judgment. They knew hell was created for Satan and his demons, and they are afraid of judgment to come. So when they met Jesus, they trembled emotionally because what they knew about him. Pastor Warren Wiersbe has a a very, very penetrating statement at this point. Listen to what he says. A person can be enlightened in his mind and even be stirred in his emotions and be lost forever. Let that sink in for a moment. 
A person can be enlightened in his mind and even stirred in his emotions and be lost forever. One of the most tender prayers of repentance that I ever heard was from a man who was now further away from God than he was the day I heard him pray that prayer. He was stirred by a message about his spiritual condition. He came forward in great emotion after the service. He prayed with an apparent sense of brokenness and contrition. But today he is further from God than he was the day I heard him pray that prayer. Now, I'm not the judge, but I fear he had emotional faith. I fear that he believed in his head, was stirred in his feelings, but it was not saving faith. Do you see the Bible's verdict on this kind of faith in verse 20? Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Are there any of us here today who see ourselves here? Maybe there's been an emotional experience in our life. And we look back upon that as being a significant thing. But we have not seen the fruits of saving faith. Emotions are a part of the Christian life, but they are not where the Christian life stops. And dead faith and emotional faith are not saving faith. Now what is saving faith then? Well, that's the third and final category. And here's the best way that I can say it. Saving faith is faith that trusts from your whole heart. Saving faith is faith that trusts from your whole heart. Now, here's what the Bible says about the heart. The heart is the center of our inner life. It includes our entire personality, so it involves our mind, our emotions, and our will. Here's what heart faith is. Heart faith involves the whole person. The mind believes in Christ, the emotions desire Christ, and the will acts and moves towards Christ, receiving Him with the whole heart. Best definition I think I've heard of saving faith is saving faith is all that I am responding to all that Jesus is. Heart faith believes in Jesus, wants Jesus, entrusts oneself to Jesus completely. It cries out to Him to be Savior and it surrenders to Him to be Lord. 
And that kind of faith changes one's life. That's why, as we look at what James says here, he calls it active faith because it always leads to action. Now, James is so wonderful here at giving us an illustration to help us see this kind of faith. He brings before us two Old Testament characters, Abraham and Rahab. And look at the little summary. We know these things about them. Abraham was the father of the Jews. He became a holy man. And his greatest act of faith was when he was prepared to sacrifice his only son. Rahab, on the other hand, was a Canaanite from Jericho. She was a prostitute. And she risked her life by protecting the Israelite spies that came into Jericho. Now let's look at these two examples, all right? Because we learn a couple of very important things that are true in a person's life when saving faith is present. Let's start with Abraham, shall we? Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. Do you know these verses have really troubled Christians? Because the Apostle James seems to contradict the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. In fact, let me put these two verses up in front of you this morning. If you've never compared these two verses, you've never looked at one of the most difficult problems in the New Testament that is apparent to us. Look what James just said. You see that a person is justified by what they do and not by faith alone. But then look what Paul says, Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Would anyone like to come up here right now and take my place to explain this? What's going on? The answer here is to understand that both apostles are using the word justified in complementary but different ways. Paul is using the word justified in a legal sense. When he says we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law, justified there means to be considered righteous by God because we have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus. Can you hear me very clearly this morning? The only way to be credited with righteousness in the presence of God is to trust what Jesus did for us on the cross. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, then what is James doing? James is using justified in a practical sense. And he is talking about demonstrating 
or proving something to be true. And he is exactly right. That we demonstrate or prove we have true saving faith by how we live and what we do. So he is using the word in a practical sense. I love this um, statement that I think is so beautiful and so helpful. The root of justification is by faith. The only thing that will credit us with righteousness in the eyes of God is our faith in Jesus. That's always the root. But the fruit of justification is by works. The only thing that can demonstrate that we have truly been credited with righteousness before God is the way that we live. That is so very, very helpful. The root of justification is by faith. That's Romans 3.28. The fruit of justification is by works. That's James 2 and verse 24. Now, let's apply this to Abraham's life, all right? Let's do this. Notice that James is telling us something very, very important here about Abraham and about us. Saving faith always leads to obeying God. This is always the fruit of a heart that has truly trusted wholeheartedly in Jesus. It leads to obeying God. Let's apply this to Abraham's life. Look at verse 23. In Genesis 15, we are told that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. That's justification in the legal sense. But then look at verse 22, or verse 15, just a little bit earlier. Notice what this verse says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? That's being justified in the practical sense. Now notice the conclusion, verse 21. He makes it so clear. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Abraham absolutely believed he was going to have to sacrifice his son. And he believed that God would raise him up. And Abraham so much wanted to please God and do God's will that he was willing to do that even though he knew there was a cost. Saving faith always leads to obeying God. Now let's look at the other side. Let's look at the illustration from Rahab. Look at verse 25 and 26. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. 
Now, all of us know about the Battle of Jericho and how the walls came tumbling down. We only know one person from the Old Testament that lived in Jericho. Her name was Rahab. And when the Israelite spies came into the city, she welcomed them into her home. And when the Jericho soldiers showed up at the door and said to Rahab, Where are the spies? She hid them up on the rooftop. When the soldiers left, she then let them climb down through a window on the wall so that they could safely escape. Do you see what Rahab did? She embraced the people of God. She risked her own life and the life of her family to save the spies from death. And in doing so, she embraced the people of God. Saving faith always does that. And so here's the second evidence that a person has truly come into a living relationship with Jesus. Saving faith leads to loving God's people. By the way, do you remember what Jesus said are the two great commandments? Remember what he said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. As a Christian, our closest neighbors are the family of God. And now James, in a different way, is saying exactly what Jesus said. These are the two greatest commandments. And while we will never perfectly obey them and fulfill them, our hearts will be so changed that we will want to obey God in a new way. And we'll want to love God's people in a new way as well. Do you see what Rahab did? She served the Lord by serving the Lord's people. She loved God by loving His children. Let me ask all of us here today, are these fruits in our life? Are these fruits in your life? Have you come to a place in your life where wholeheartedly You have believed in Christ with your head. You have desired Him in your emotions. And you have received Him by an act of wholehearted faith. And now because that happened, you want to obey God more than you ever did before, and you are obeying Him more. And you love His people more than you ever did before. Those are always the fruits of real salvation. Uh, Pastor Jim Carlson is a friend of mine. He's a cousin of the Marker family. He pastored for many years in Ludington, Michigan. He said one day uh, he and some friends from his church were out. 
and they knocked on the door of a home. He was totally unprepared for what was going to happen when the door was opened. Because when the woman of the home opened the door, he was greeted by a woman with two black eyes. Her alcoholic boyfriend was beating her. And she had no place where she could turn at that point in her life until Pastor Carlson and his two Christian friends knocked on her door. She started coming to the church. She trusted Christ as her Savior. She was wonderfully taken out of that situation. And every Friday in the sanctuary of that church, she would straighten the pews in preparation for Sunday services. She was so grateful for what Jesus had done for her and for what that church had done in bringing her to Jesus that every single Friday that was her little ministry. One day, Pastor Carlson said he went into the sanctuary on a Friday, and there she was, straightening up the church. And and as they talked, she said to him, Pastor Carlson, I still would be where I was had Jesus not found me. And she is a modern-day Rahab. This morning, as we close this message, it is remarkable for us to look at the faith of Rahab. Let's summarize it, shall we? She could have had dead faith, intellect only. She could have had demonic faith, mind enlightened and emotions stirred. But instead, she had dynamic faith, saving faith. Her mind knew the truth. Her heart was stirred by the truth. Her will acted on the truth as she believed wholeheartedly in the God of Israel. And she proved her faith by her works. Has this happened to you? Have you experienced this? This is the only kind of faith that will bring you to salvation. Where do we all stand this morning? What does this checkup say? And as we bow our heads together, let's respond to the Lord that we might have the real thing. Let's close our eyes and let's bow our heads. Have you seen yourself in this mirror that James has held up to our faith? As a pastor over many years, I've seen people in all three categories. 
And I know how easy it is for us to deceive ourselves. Would you allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you? To examine your heart? And where you stand with the Lord? This could be the most important checkup you have ever had. You can say something like this from your heart to the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, I want to be sure I have saving faith. I don't want to be someone who thinks because I've gone through certain church motions that that means I'm a Christian. I don't want to be someone who, because I've had an emotional experience, thinks that that is salvation. But Lord, today I want to have the real thing. I want to have the real thing. And you could say something like this. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm like Rahab. I'm lost. I'm a sinner. I'm without hope. But I believe that you died for me on the cross and rose again that I might have eternal life. I'm repenting. I'm turning from my own selfish way. And I'm turning to you. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Be my Lord. Forgive me of my sins. Grant me the gift of eternal life. Make me a child of God. And now, Lord Jesus, knowing that this involves a a wholehearted turning to you, I thank you for making me a child of God. And I now say that I plan to follow you, live for you, love your people as the fruits of my salvation with all my heart. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. Holy Spirit, do that work that only you can do. Open blind eyes. Awaken hard hearts. Implant the seed of new life. And draw men, women, boys and girls. Even those, Lord, who may think things are fine when they may not be. Draw them to Yourself. And may this be a day of 
coming to know God as our Heavenly Father. And Jesus is our Lord and Savior for many today. For Jesus' sake we pray.